Hello, everyone. Welcome to Biota. I'm your host, Phil Gibson. This episode's coming out at a time when all the cues outside my window indicate we're rapidly coming to the end of the year. The days have been getting shorter and the nights have been getting longer for a while now, so it's noticeably colder and darker than it was just a month ago. Most trees are dormant and have lost their leaves, so the, the landscape is pretty barren except for a few evergreen trees and shrubs here and there. But it's not all cold and darkness, because at this time of year, lights and other decorations have been hung on houses and trees all over the place. Wreaths and garlands of holly and other evergreens, as well as poinsettias, are in decorations everywhere. So like the song says, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. So what I'm gonna do in this end of year episode is explore the question, why do we do these things? Why do we have these botanical traditions that range from solemn to celebratory? Why do we deck the halls and why is holly the preferred plant for doing that task? And what's up with bringing a, a tree inside and decorating it and singing songs to it? Well, in this episode, I wanna consider how many of our holiday traditions at this time of year have their origins in ancient agricultural festivals that would be held around the date of the winter solstice, which is the shortest day and longest night of the year. As with many holiday traditions, Christmas traditions can trace their origins to ancient beliefs and rituals that indicate awareness of the importance of seasonal changes and that link between people and nature, particularly plants. So just like I did in an episode about Halloween, let's think about the botany of Christmas. So to do this, we need to start by thinking about the solar year, which is the time it takes for the Earth to return to the same spot as it orbits the sun. Because Earth has a slight tilt relative to its path around the sun, there are four important solar events that occur throughout the year, two equinoxes and two solstices. An equinox is when day and night length are equal, 12 hours each, everywhere on the globe. On our modern calendar, there's one in March and one six months later in September. A solstice is either the longest day and shortest night or the shortest day and longest night of the year. There's one solstice in June, and then one six months later in December. At the spring equinox, day and night are equal length. But after the spring equinox, days become longer than the night. Now that length of day will increase and night will decrease until the halfway point between the two equinoxes, which occurs in June. And that's when we have the longest day and shortest night of the year, which is called the summer solstice. After the summer solstice, Days become shorter and nights become longer until they're equal again at the autumn equinox. Following the autumn equinox, nights become longer and longer until they reach their greatest length at the winter solstice. After the winter solstice, day length increases, nights become shorter until the spring equinox when the cycle repeats. Now the difference between the length of day and night on a solstice increases the farther away that a location is from the equator. So the higher the latitude, the longer the day will be on the summer solstice, and conversely, the longer the night will be on the winter solstice. Although the winter solstice is technically the beginning of winter, it can sometimes be called midwinter because it's at the halfway point during that part of the year between the two equinoxes when the days are shorter than the night. And that's the solstice we're most interested in for this episode. Now, ancient people have been aware of the importance of marking the solstice for at least 7,000 years. The Gosek Circles in Germany is one of the oldest structures that shows this because it has openings in the concentric rings that, that align with the rising and setting sun on the winter solstice. 
Our hunter-gatherer ancestors were likely aware of these seasonal differences in food availability for both plants and animals that they ate. But once they developed agriculture, it became critically important to know when these seasonal events would occur, and the Gosek circles as well as other structures around the world show that they knew that these were important events and that they could be predicted. Understanding seasonal patterns was critically important for early agricultural communities where knowing the cues and reliable indicators of seasonal change were essential to know things like when you should plant or how long it would be until harvest or how long it would be until plants would grow again. Now, although they didn't know the scientific reason for seasonal changes, our ancestors knew that it was related to the sun. The gods and rituals and legends may vary from culture to culture around the world, but a common theme that we find in these winter solstice celebrations is that they, they involve a powerful deity or a sun god that's either reborn or somehow reinvigorated during the winter which is indicated by the increasing length of daylight after the solstice. And so this helps bring winter to an end as the days grow longer and earth comes back to life in spring with the return of the sun god. Different cultures shared a common belief that if they perform their solstice holiday rituals properly and they please the god or gods on this date, the sun would return and they would be rewarded with a good harvest in the coming year. Because they all experienced the winter solstice on the same date, it's not just a coincidence that these important holidays in different cultures overlap on the calendar at the same time. So in the Northern Hemisphere, what we're talking about is December 21st in our current calendar when the winter solstice occurs. So now that we have the astronomical foundation for seasons and the date of the solstices and equinoxes established, let's get into how some ancient people mark the winter solstice and the botanical origins of several Christmas traditions. One of the oldest recorded winter solstice celebrations was the ancient agricultural festival celebrated in ancient Rome named Saturnalia. On December 17th of the Julian calendar, which would be the day before the solstice, normal daily life in ancient Rome came to a standstill. This day was designated as a day of feasting to mark the beginning of a multi-day celebration for Saturn, the Roman god of agriculture. The name Saturn itself comes from the verb satus, which means to plant seeds. Roman legends described how Saturn, who is also known by his Greek name Kronos, left Greece and brought agriculture, viticulture, and the good life to the people of Latium, and that's a region of western Italy that would become the future location of Rome. The Roman people referred to this period of prosperity that Saturn brought as the Golden Age. When Rome was founded, they constructed a temple to Saturn at one end of their large public plaza called the Forum. In the temple was a large wooden statue of Saturn who held a scythe in his hand. That statue also had large wool straps and ropes wrapped around its feet throughout the year except for being removed during Saturnalia. Removing the ropes represented Saturn being released from the bonds of order and liberating him to enjoy the pleasures of Saturnalia. And so after removing these ropes, priests would offer a sacrifice to their god and then the party would begin. You see, Saturn wasn't the only one liberated during Saturnalia. During this holiday, the fundamental social structure changed dramatically. Work, commerce, school, courts, government, all of this stopped. The rules that dictated behavior, status, and order in the day-to-day -day life of Roman society, those rules were suspended temporarily and in some instances reversed. For example, slaves were all symbolically freed during Saturnalia, and they were allowed to wear a type of pointed hat called a pileus, that was normally only worn by free individuals. So during Saturnalia, everyone was free. 
Some slaves could even eat with or, or be served by their masters at the Saturnalia feast, so, so life was very different during this time. One of the temporarily freed servants would be chosen as the Lord of Misrule if they were the one who found a coin or some other small object that was hidden in the cake. The Lord of Misrule would then cause general mischief in the household and, and give ridiculous orders to everyone, within reason of course, throughout the Saturnalia festivities. Instead of typical public attire, Romans wore brightly colored clothes known as synthesis during Saturnalia. And they also decorated their homes with wreaths and other greenery for the holiday, including especially boughs of the evergreen plant holly to symbolize the persistence of life. Holly has shiny green leaves with sharp prickles at their tips and blood red berries. So we can see the red and green motif indicative of Christmas getting a start with early Roman celebrations. Holiday was considered sacred to Saturn, and Romans would give holly wreaths to one another as presents, and they would decorate images and statues of Saturn with holly. Another plant that Romans used in decorations was mistletoe. Like now, mistletoe was hung over doors to ensure peace, friendship, and protection during the holiday for all who passed under it. Romans also thought that mistletoe could promote fertility in men and romance for couples that would kiss underneath it. After the decorations, the main event for Saturnalia was the feast and celebration that followed. This raucous party is probably one of the reasons that first century poet Catullus described Saturnalia as, quote, the best of times, end quote. In public gatherings and in private homes, Romans would eat special food, drink large amounts of wine, and generally celebrate to excess. At the public feast, priests would bring a statue of Saturn and place it on a chair at the head of the table so that he could enjoy the party. Romans were free to gamble and engage in other vices that were normally frowned upon and even illegal during the rest of the year. There was a lot of drinking and feasting, games, gift giving, and activities that ranged from general merrymaking to serious state-sponsored debauchery. Romans would greet one another with the salutation of Yo Saturnalia, and all of this was done to please their beloved god Saturn before the next planting season began and the crops were harvested. Now, Saturnalia was originally a one-day celebration on December 17th, but it eventually expanded to last from the 17th through the 23rd. This allowed the festival to span the winter solstice and gave more opportunities for traditions to develop. For example, Sigillaria was the name of one day during Saturnalia when Romans would give friends and family small terracotta figurines called Signalaria. However, once Saturnalia was over, Saturn's feet were rebound, and the social hierarchy was reestablished. Farmers would then return home to begin the serious work of planting and growing crops for the winter planting season, and all the while hoping that they had pleased Saturn enough that he would reward them with a bountiful harvest. So how did we get from a pagan agricultural festival to the holiday of Christmas? And I want to point out here that, that by describing it as pagan, I don't mean that as a pejorative, but rather I'm indicating it's a polytheistic religion based on links with nature, as opposed to the more monotheistic system found in Christianity. The link between Saturnalia and Christmas was primarily driven by the conversion of Roman Emperor Constantine the Great to Christianity in the year 312. By 336, Christians had settled on December 25th to celebrate Christmas for a variety of reasons that we can't get into here. Between 336 and 354, Christmas began to be celebrated as a formal part of Roman culture and government, and it replaced the Saturnalia celebration, which many considered too pagan. 
December 25th was also the date of a Roman civil holiday honoring Sol Invictus, the unconquerable sun god, who was the chief deity and source of all life to members of an ancient monotheistic cult that originated in Syria but had followers in Rome. And as you might have guessed, the life-giving Sol Invictus began his return to Earth after the winter solstice as the days grow longer and the growing season would begin. Given the proximity of the dates for these three holidays, it was a relatively simple process for Saturnalia, Sol Invictus, and Christmas to be rolled into one holiday once Christianity became the state religion of Rome. And as is often the case when different traditions from different cultures met Christianity, some traditions and customs were kept, some were modified, and entirely new ones were created. The similarity and conceptual overlap among the holidays made it easier for the new Christmas holiday to absorb Saturnalia and be accepted by the people of Rome. Early Christians in Rome had already adopted the practice of decorating their homes with holly to avoid detection and persecution by Roman authorities, so holly was easily integrated into the new celebrations of Christmas where it gained new stories telling of its sacred importance among plants to that religion. Romans lit candles during Saturnalia to help the sun return at the solstice, and this practice was adopted by Christians for Christmas rituals as well. And over time, what I can only describe as holiday rebranding, Saturnalia was no longer celebrated in Rome, and Christmas took its place. But wait a minute, you might be thinking, there are a lot of other traditions and botanical symbols that are clearly not Roman. That's true, and to talk about them and how they fit into all of this, we need to travel north of Rome to the snowy lands where the Celts, Norse, and Germanic people developed their own midwinter solstice traditions. For example, Irish Celts celebrate Maywan Givre. In Wales, they observe Alban Artan, while Scots celebrate Hogmanay. But the classic midwinter celebration from these regions, whose name lives on at Christmas, is Yule. The Norse and other Germanic people celebrated a midwinter pagan holiday known as Yule that occurred over 12 days of midwinter that they called Yuletide. For this holiday, a fire would be built with a special piece of wood called a Yule log. Burning a Yule log probably originated in ancient Germanic paganism as a ceremonial bonfire at a midwinter ritual, and it eventually transformed into a log that would be decorated and then burned as part of a ceremonial fire in public or in a family's hearth during Yule. The Yule log was burned for the duration of the holiday to bring good luck in the coming year to the family. Similar to the Roman use of candles, Yule logs were burned because the Norse believed that the sun stopped moving for 12 days at the solstice, and burning a Yule log was necessary to get it moving again. Now the Germanic, Norse, and Celtic pagans also decorated their homes with boughs of holly and other evergreens during the dark days of midwinter. Evergreens were decorated with fruits and other items to protect the home and symbolize life enduring through the darkest part of the year. Many of the pagan religions in this area practiced a form of paganism based on Druidism. They believed that the summer was ruled by the Oak King, and when he shed his leaves and slept, winter was ruled by the Holly King. Holly had this special sacred distinction because it's one of the few green trees in winter that, despite its prickly leaves, can provide forage to livestock. It also produces bright red berries that provide food for wildlife and give color to an otherwise drab landscape. And so to the Celts and Norse, holly symbolized life and endurance. In addition to holly, another plant found in both Saturnalia and Yule decorations is mistletoe. 
The first century Roman historian Pliny the Elder observed a group of Celtic druids collecting mistletoe from an oak as part of an elaborate ceremony. Although that ceremony was not part of Yule, it did indicate that mistletoe had special significance to these people. Now, both the Norse and Romans have detailed mythologies and stories that describe the virtue of mistletoe and explain why, in addition to just being an attractive green plant that produces small white berries in the winter, mistletoe has mystical significance as a symbol of peace and fertility and romance. And that explains why both cultures used it in decorations, including hanging it over doorways at this time of year. As the Roman Empire expanded, more people came into contact with their customs, religions, and holidays. The adoption of Christianity by the Anglo-Saxons in the late 500s and early 600s, followed by the conversion of the Norse in the 1100s, led to many of the botanical traditions of the Norse and Celtic midwinter celebrations being absorbed into the Romans' hybrid Saturnalia Christmas fusion that was going on, and the Christmas holiday continued to evolve. And it hasn't stopped evolving. So as an example of how midwinter solstice celebrations in general, and Christmas celebrations in particular, have continued to evolve, let's consider one of the more recent botanical traditions of the holidays. It's linked to ancient practices and has become the primary botanical symbol of the holiday, the Christmas tree. As I mentioned earlier, decorating with evergreen plants is an ancient tradition that is older than even Saturnalia. The ancient Egyptians decorated with greenery during their solstice celebrations dedicated to their sun god, Ra. And there are Norse stories about their sun god, Baldr, favoring evergreens above all other plants. Now, interestingly, Baldr was killed by an arrow made of mistletoe when one of Loki's tricks went wrong. And after Baldr was brought back to life, mistletoe was changed so that it could never kill again and instead promote love. Anyhow, to get back on track, Christmas trees in the modern context are a fairly recent addition that started during the 16th century in areas we now know as Germany. There, people would bring small fir trees into their home and decorate them with fruit, paper flowers, and other small items. This practice became more ritualized and complex as it spread to more people. I mean, think about it, there's now an entire industry dedicated solely to making Christmas tree ornaments for the holidays. When the practice of decorating Christmas trees was adopted by royal families in Europe, it promoted the custom and then it began to spread very rapidly and became the Christmas symbol we know today. Now, although it is still considered pagan by some sects of Christianity, Christmas trees developed mythologies, rituals, and customs that were fitted to the Christmas holiday story. So whether live or freshly cut, real, artificial, or even the totally spectacular vintage aluminum tree I use, Christmas trees remain as an ancient but dynamic botanical custom in both sacred and secular winter holiday celebrations. And finally, we come to one of the more recent botanical additions to Christmas that's probably one of my favorites, the poinsettia. Poinsettias grow as shrubs or small trees in tropical dry forests from Mexico into Central America. The plants were originally cultivated by the Aztecs, who called it Quetlaxochi. I've seen different translations of what that means. The ones I trust the most, it means something like brilliant flame flower that withers. Now, poinsettias don't have any association with midwinter celebrations or any other celebrations in the Aztecs that first domesticated it. It's pretty, and it has some minor medicinal use, but that's about it. Some Catholic priests had begun to use it in their celebrations in that area, but it wasn't until 1825 when diplomat Joel Roberts Poinsett, an amateur botanist, sent plants he collected in Mexico to his greenhouses in South Carolina. 
Poinsettias have brilliant bright red modified leaves called bracts. They aren't petals and they complement the green leaves of the plant beautifully. So once again, there's that red and green theme coming up again. The tiny yellow flowers in the middle of all the red bracts make a wonderful eye-catching display that has become a staple of holiday decorations. Greenhouse owner Albert Ecke began growing poinsettias in Los Angeles in the early 1900s. He and his family worked extensively on improving growth and propagation techniques for this species. Poinsettias are what botanists call short day plants, meaning they require long periods of darkness from about 13 to 16 hours in order to flower. Now, because they naturally bloom in winter, it made them a good choice for midwinter horticulture, and all you need to do is have some very well-timed coaxing over a six-week period to get them to flower on time. Currently, Paul Ecke Ranch is one of the leading poinsettia growers, if not the top poinsettia grower in the world, who ships plants everywhere. More recently, ethnobotanists conducted a genetic analysis of poinsettias and determined that a population in the northern region of the Mexican state of Guerrero is likely the original collection site of the commercial poinsettias grown today. That brings us to the end of this biota episode, so let me summarize the main points. Cultures around the world noticed that there are predictable changes in the lengths of days and nights that indicated where they were in the seasonal cycle of the calendar. Recognizing the importance of the sun in growing food and other aspects of day-to-day -day life, different people develop beliefs and rituals to acknowledge these seasonal changes and the central role of the sun in sustaining life. There are some common features that link the ideas and motivations behind these celebrations. Fundamentally, they're all agricultural festivals. And there are also other similarities among the celebrations, like how Saturnalia and Yule both involve celebrations with feasting and drinking and decorating with evergreens. But each has its own unique features, like the Yule Log for the Norse or the Lord of Misrule for the Romans. But as these cultures encountered one another, they adopted, adapted, merged, and modified their traditions to give us the celebrations we know today. Although there is undeniably a link to Christianity, it's fair to say that there still are many elements of the ancient pagan celebration in this holiday. And we can't necessarily say that Saturnalia or Yule directly became Christmas, but all of these holidays are built on the same ancient, botanically-based agricultural festivals that celebrated the importance of the sun and plants in sustaining life. Thanks for joining me on this holiday episode of Biota. If you want to learn more about the topics I covered, I can recommend the two books that were my primary sources. First, the book Saturnalia by Macrobius describes the holiday and other aspects of Roman life at the time. There are several good translations available. I also used a book titled The Christmas Tree by James Hewitt for general Christmas tree history. You can also investigate research on this topic by searching for festive ecology on Google Scholar or other similar search engines. Festive ecology is the approach to ethnobotany that explores the relationships between the symbolism and ecology of plants that are used in holidays, ceremonies, and festivals. I don't know what holidays you celebrate at this time of year, if any, so I just want to leave you with some words from one of my favorite holiday songs, and it goes like this. Whether it's Hanukkah or Kwanzaa, solstice, harvest, or December 25th, peace on earth to everyone and abundance to everyone you're with. Take care and be safe, my friends. Yo, Saturnalia, and I'll talk to you again next year. Biota is a production of Under the Juniper Studios. All opinions expressed are those of the author alone. Thank you.